my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Today, we're joined by the triple threat, who is actor, singer, and dancer Reggie Jennings. Reggie is an American performer based in Germany. One of his recent career highlights includes his performances on season 10 of The Voice Germany, which premiered in October 2020. Reggie's professional credentials include performances in the stage productions of Aida, Chicago, and Starlight Express. He's also performed in film and television as an actor and as a dancer on the MTV Music Awards and the TV Hall of Fame. Welcome, Reggie. <laughs> Hello. Hey. That's quite a resume. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. A little nervous. About the interview. I don't know if it's about the interview itself, but interviews have always kind of made me a little nervous. Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll go well, very conversational, very casual. <laughs> I'm sure it will. I mean, I'm easygoing. And so you're in Germany. I'm in Germany, a little town called Bochum. You ever heard of that? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Cologne. I've heard of Cologne. I've been to Berlin. Okay. Yeah. This is a ways from Berlin. Essen? Maybe. Bochum is in the, the middle of this ring of large... North Rhine, Westfalen cities. Mm -hmm. uh, Essen, Duisburg, Wuppertal is famous for hanging trains, their public transportation called Schwebebahn. Okay. Then Bochum is right in the middle. And this whole area was an industrial part of the country. Yeah. So supposedly it was once very rich. Oh. And just to go ahead and segue, <laughs> Starlight Express was actually presented here in Bochum because it's in the middle of this ring of larger cities. I mean, it has sustained itself because so many people actually come from outside of Bochum to see the show. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there was method to their madness of putting it in this little city. It's grown a lot from what I understand. I've been here 13 years. And when I got here in 2007, a friend of mine who had also played Papa in Starlight Express had been here, I think, twice before. And he constantly talked about how much this little town has grown because of Starlight Express. Oh, the musical. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is performed in a state theater. The state actually owns the theater. And the state built the theater. It was temporary. The show was only supposed to last five years. And here we are 32, 33 years later, still there. So when you mean the state, you mean the government of Germany or... Or the state of Bochum. I got it. Okay. And have you lived in other German cities? Lived in? No. I came here because my friend was here. I came here from a little cruise ship company called Disney. <laughs> a little one. <laughs> yeah. And I left the ship quite abruptly and wasn't sure where to go or what to do, but my first inkling was to move to Germany. I did Starlight Express in Las Vegas back in 1996. And that's where I met this friend. He came over from Germany then to do the show in Las Vegas. 
and he had been talking to me about coming to Germany ever since. And back in, I guess, 2005 or six, maybe, mm -hmm. I actually did talk to the director here over the phone about what I needed to get there. I was sort of bored with Broadway and the Broadway community and the shows that were being produced there that just weren't very interesting to me. I go with the flow, but I've never just stayed in a job or a place just for money. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I lived in Harlem those last three years and I saw Harlem begin to change very quickly and very drastically. And Broadway shows weren't very interesting. They were still very white, with the exception of The Color Purple and The Lion King. And yeah, so the reason I took the ship is I was looking for a way to get out of New York City. And the ship just happened to come my way. But um, when I left the ship, I called my friend and I said, okay, if I come to Germany, <laughs> where you are, what's going to happen? What can I do? Yeah. And it just so happened that when I landed in Germany, the final audition for the next season of Starlight Express was in two weeks. Okay. Uh, and so I naturally went to the audition and they were happy with what they saw. And then I sang and they were really happy with the singing and couldn't believe that I could sing that well for someone who danced that well. They invited me to come see the show two nights later. And during intermission, <laughs> the choreographer asked me, so what do you think? Because it's, it's actually longer than the show was in Vegas. And I, of course, thought she was talking about the steps and the set. And then she said, yeah, the German will come. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just thought, nah, she didn't say that. So I just kind of ignored it. And uh, when my friend and I left the office to go back and watch the second act, we both looked at each other and said, did she say? Yeah, she did. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and so I got hired basically right then and there. But she had to learn German. I had to learn German. It's a difficult language because of the structure. I have a twin sister. My twin sister and I learned Spanish and Mandarin Chinese at home <laughs> with our father. And my mother worked in the Atlanta public school system. So when we were going to the fourth grade, she got us sent to the number one public school in Atlanta. There, they actually taught Spanish. So we were introduced to language at an early age. That's good. Yeah. And then in sixth grade, I decided to go into French. And since then, I've had eight years of French. So I have a real understanding of language and structure. Yeah, well, maybe that woman in the musical sensed that. <laughs> and that, you know, obviously you're talented, but she was like, okay, he's going to learn German too. From what I've understood, back in the early days, the cast here was mostly American, but Americans are expensive. So when I joined, they are almost exclusively British. But the show is in German, so all the music is in German. You know, to touch on language and also your performance on The Voice Germany, I know some Swedish from going back and forth, and I studied it a little bit, you know, because Swedish is a Germanic language. Now that I know some Swedish, now when I hear German, I can hear a few words. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so when you were on there, I saw the performance of you doing the battle with the woman, Maria. Ah, uh, yes, Maria, yes. Hit the road, Jack. 
Yeah. And wasn't sure if you were American or not. And then you spoke and I was, and I was like, I think he might be, but then you spoke German. So I was like, okay. <laughs> Most Germans think I'm British. They hear the English and they don't really notice the accent. I've heard that here. And I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. They, they learn British English, but yeah, I'm American. So you saw the battle. You didn't see the blind audition. I did. Yes. Oh, okay. And both, yeah, were amazing. I just want to say that. I'm going to try to be neutral, but just seeing your clips, you're a phenomenal singer. <laughs> oh, thank you. And I just saw the one you posted on Instagram, uh, the uh, cover of U2. So. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I didn't dislike the song before, but your version of it made me like it even more. It's exactly what I said, because the guy, he's a friend of mine, and he, through his church, actually produced the concerts that I do. And that was a clip from a concert. Okay. And uh, he suggested that song. And I was like, no, oh, I don't really like that song. But if you think it's popular enough, then we can do it. And there's a, a bass player from Starlight Express here who plays with Supertramp, big band in the 70s, 80s in America. I actually love them. And he is my bass player. And uh, when we got to that song in our first rehearsal, he was like, you know, I never really liked this song. You know, it's just something about it. I thought maybe we could try this funky beat. And he just started <laughs> and he completely changed the bass. Yeah. And one by one, the other instrumentalists started just sort of jumping in and it became what you heard on that clip. And it made me love the song even more. Yeah. It's hard for me to actually say I'm a singer. Yeah, I know. I get that all the time, that reaction. <laughs> I mean, I've sung all my life, especially as we do in America. But my sister and I sang Earth, Wind & Fire with the radio. And of course, my parents listened to Al Green and Gladys Knight and the Pips. Uh, that's my mother's favorite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and eventually, my sister and I started singing in the children's choir in church. So I've been singing all my life but just sort of in the background on the side. Then when I started high school, this guy, Robert Green, his mother was one of the three parents who led our theater club. And he approached me one day, oh, Reggie, I heard you singing in the hallways and I think you should audition for the talent show. I went to this audition and sang a song and they immediately said, okay, you're singing two songs for the talent show and when the talent show came around and I sang my first song and the kids started applauding, I was like, okay, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> because it was this high school theater club, we all had to participate with maybe set design or set okay. decorating. So a full education. Oh yeah, I learned how to run a spotlight. And so this was sort of my introduction into theater. There was a famous theater, the Civic Center, in uh, Atlanta, you know, they said, go down to the Civic Center, you can usher for free whenever you want, and you can see whatever you want. So I started going to the Civic Center and I started ushering for concerts, musical theater shows, the summer stock shows. So I just started building this library of musical theater. And then uh, my senior year, the principal of the school hired two professional local directors from Atlanta. And they came in and said, yeah, we're going to do Godspell. Reggie, we want you to play Jesus. And I thought, okay. And then one day during rehearsals, they said, Reggie, Six Flags over Georgia is having auditions. You should go. 
I said, okay. And I went and I got a call near the beginning of summer. And uh, it was Dale Provenzano, the entertainment director at Six Flags Over Georgia. He said that one of the guys wanted to leave the show and they wanted to know if I was interested in doing it. And this is in high school. This is senior year of high school. Yeah, the rest is history, I guess. I started at Georgia Tech that fall. So I started my dance career when I started my uh, architecture education. I got tired of school. I started running out of money. Uh, and so someone in my architecture class said, Reggie, well, Disney's having auditions. Go to Disney. Long story short, just having that student hear me sing and tell me to come sing for the talent show opened up a whole new world and became a career. You mentioned earlier about, you know, your decision making, but what I hear is that you consciously or unconsciously were paying attention to more than just this. It was more like organic. Constantly, consistently. I don't know where I learned that. It's funny. I, a couple of years ago, it dawned on me that I actually am very self-confident, but I never thought I was a confident person. But I think to make the kinds of choices that I made required, I mean, a level of confidence that I don't see in most people. So she, at the age you were when you started, you could have said, I'm going to be safe and, you know, get the four-year degree and, you know, whatever your society tells us to do, but you did something differently. Uh, actually, something I think a lot of us who are creatives wish we had the courage to do. Well, now, actually, I did go back and get the degree. So I have an architecture degree, but really because I also love learning and I loved architecture. My father was a college professor of physics and chemistry. Mm, okay. And my mom, like I said, worked in the Atlanta public school system as an elementary school teacher at that time. My whole life, we were surrounded by education and the importance of education. But when I graduated from Georgia Tech, I went back to Disney World and really dove in to singing and dancing. I worked with a group, the World Dancers. They were basically the ballet company on Disney property. Everybody knew I had no dance training. Everyone would help in their own way. Scott Conway, Mickey Mance, they were like ballerinas and they would pay particular attention to me. Becky Cano was this incredible all around dancer who had had flamenco. You know, we had Tammy Fox and all these others who had lots of jazz class, so they would give a jazz warm up. One of the producers of the group had danced with Elvis Presley on TV in the 60s. So I was surrounded by all of this. And so I just soaked up as much as I could from anyone I could in that group. Yeah, in the middle of the ocean of talent, support, technical, which is important. Kind of return to the present on The Voice. I don't know much about the program in any country. You know, based on what I saw, I would say you're definitely a professional. What was the decision behind you being on The Voice in Germany? Self-promotion. That's it. I had two or three friends who had done it before I got here. They said, you go on as a commercial for yourself. Don't expect to win because they're going to see that you're a professional and that's not what they're looking for. But even if you get on TV just to do a blind audition, you've been on TV as a singer and it'll sort of get your name out there. So that was literally the only reason to do it. 
How was your experience on there? Fantastic. It was hurt a little bit by the COVID experience. We couldn't hang out as much. Your, your time with each other was really, really, really limited. Coming from the South and Atlanta, I'm a big hugger. We couldn't hug each other. And even the judges, Stephanie and Yvonne, were like, oh, you know, we just want to hug you. But everyone backstage was so incredibly nice. And the atmosphere backstage was so easy. There were a lot of incredibly talented singers there. I loved the studio and I loved the people there. So it was a great experience. That's good to hear, because I know with competition shows and especially with social media, it's like, I think, oh, it's going to be backbiting and drama. <laughs> I think that's what we hear about the entertainment industry anyway. Exactly. Yeah. For example, we hear that about girls, especially. It's always horrible. It's always catty fights and stuff. I've never had that experience in, what, 35, 36 years of entertainment. You always have your jealousies. You always have your cocky ones. You always have your confident ones who are sort of misunderstood, <laughs> but never like a group problem. Dispel that myth. <laughs> and it could be too, you know, energy, what, uh, you know, energy attracts energy. That's, I, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. You mentioned the pandemic. How has it been for you in Germany professionally and personally? Well, sad to say, appearing on The Voice of Germany did almost nothing. What do you mean? So no theaters were looking for people. No one was hiring fans or anyone for uh, entertainment. It, it didn't really help me so much professionally as a singer, but I do know my name is out there. And it did lead to that WDR television show. The people who wanted me for that show saw me on The Voice and liked me. I've almost always gotten in trouble for not taking my vacation days because I love what I do. I tended to always think of between gigs as my holiday. That was my vacation. But I've never been one to go into a situation, to go into a show, imagining when I wouldn't be working. So for me, not being allowed to go anywhere was like early retirement. I never thought I would be ready, but I'm like, uh, okay. Um, but we have to get that money. Yeah. I love being on stage. I hate almost everything that leads up to being on stage. What do you mean? I hate rehearsing. I said I like learning, but learning songs and lyrics is just hard <laughs> for me. So before I get to stage, whatever that period ends up being, I'm stressed about these lyrics and that melody and how am I gonna sing that note? And then when I get on stage, it's just, hey, y'all, let's have a good time. You just sparked a question for me. Well, how do you work as a singer with the emotions of a song? Somewhere along the line, I learned that a song is really a script. You have to take the song in the context of to whom are you speaking? What's the situation? Why are you saying what you're saying? Then you have to sing. And the best lesson came when I auditioned for Chicago, the musical. <laughs> um, the breakdown said, you know, sing a musical theater type song up tempo. And I thought, ooh, I don't really have an up tempo that I like to sing, but I do sing summertime. And I've heard it done jazzy, so I'll just do it faster. <laughs> and in that little room, the associate musical director, after I sang it through, 
he said, don't ever do that again. And then he stood up and he walked over towards me and he said, this song is about waiting for the summer to come back. So he said, you have to imagine that it's the dead of winter. And then he proceeded just sort of go ahead and set this, this thing. And because I was only in the moment of what I was creating with the lyrics, I wasn't sort of presenting the song. I did all of this acting without thinking about it and without planning it. And I thought, ah, okay. It reinforces, even in emoting, how technical you have to be as a singer, as a performer. Yeah. But on the flip side, because I end up saying this to singers all the time, it's not about singing pretty. And it's not about singing perfectly. And I've said to a few of them, you know, with the song they chose, you're singing a sad song. What if you do crack on that high note? It just reinforces the sadness. To the listener, it might sound like you didn't hit that note because you were about to cry and you had to control it. You know what I mean? It's so true. You know, I listen to music to feel something. So have you worked in other countries or cities outside of the U.S.? I did AIDA. A year after I joined the Broadway company, Wayne asked me to go to Amsterdam, the Netherlands, with the show and help build it. So I went with his associate choreographer and we helped build the show with the associate director. And I ended up staying there a year with that production. And two friends of mine, well, actually three friends of mine, took me twice to Macau, China for their music festival. Once we did Chicago the Musical, but more of a period piece. And we did Guys and Dolls, my first ever musical from high school. With Disney, I went to, I think Mexico City and Monterrey for a little tour. And we went to Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver in Canada. So you've been around a little bit. I've been around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So who was Reggie as a little boy? Shy, skinny, thoughtful, inquisitive, and alone. What do you mean by that? I was a loner. Um, In my memory, I was always interrupted and ignored. I don't remember feeling like any kind of oppression or anything. And I've never delved into what that might have been psychologically. But because of that and, you know, realizing that I was different and somehow it's not what people like, uh, I just started hanging out with myself. And so when we moved into the house where my sister and mom are now, there was a downstairs, a basement. And I would go down there. I mean, it's funny because I should have known that I was destined to be in a creative field because I did things like take poster boards and tape them together and then take bar soap and scrub it on the poster boards and then put on socks and pretend like I was ice skating. That's like ingenuity. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was teased growing up. I remember wondering why people didn't like me because I liked people. I remember in fifth grade, so that's what, 10 years old? I remember in fifth grade deciding that I would try to treat everyone as if they were special. I always tended to gravitate towards the ones who were shunned, the skinny one with the broken glasses. Mm -hmm. And I remember middle school when I said to myself, 
you know what? They're bored and they just need something to do and just don't give them any reason to continue. It didn't take long for them to get bored and move on to the next person. It's kind of like animals in the wild, like they smell blood. You touched on something that made me think. It's like, we're all humans. We all want to be around people and we all want to be a part of and validated. But so many of us who are creatives or some of our most celebrated people, you know, a lot of them have a similar story to yours in that they didn't feel a part of. They were shunned. They were ridiculed for things that later people put them on pedestals for. Exactly. You asked me who I was as a little boy. I think the first word I said was shy, but I have a career on stage. No, I understand that, yeah. Uh, people ask about singing and the voice and how can you not think of yourself as a singer? And I believe this goes along with what we're talking about now. Um, mm -hmm. When I sing as Papa, for me, I'm not singing. It's Papa who's singing. So being on stage is just like being in that basement. I'm locked away and hidden away in the basement of the character. But it sounds too like your home or your sanctuary. Uh, totally. I never thought of it that way. So in being different, just to confirm, you mm -hmm. were talking about being gay, right? So how old were you when you became aware of what that meant for you? What it meant for me? Yikes. Yeah. I remember I had crushes in middle school. I remember Mr. Allen, the English teacher, construction worker, the mustache, the <laughs> shirt unbuttoned to here with the hair crawling out. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember the boys I thought were cute. I had a crush on, oh my God. Do you remember the Tarzan series that was on television, Saturday mornings, Ron Eli? That name sounds familiar. I didn't realize at the time how big of a star he was. He was actually a movie star, but he had these long legs and his, what do you call it? What Tarzan wears? The... Oh, the loincloth. <laughs> the loincloth, yeah. His loincloth was short and I would get up every Saturday morning just to watch that, yeah. just to see him. Superman, I watched the George Reeves television series. Yes, I gravitated towards Superman because he was a superhuman guy. But also, I mean, he wore tights, you know? <laughs> and he was this, this muscle man. Dukes of Hazard. So it, it's, it's really hard for me to say when I understood exactly what it was. It's funny. My sister and I were in a Christian kindergarten. It was Druid Hills, Atlanta. So it was a white area. So actually, out of 22 kids, my sister and I were the only black people. There was the teacher's son, and he had blonde hair. I think his eyes were blue. And I knew I liked him. Consciously. Because of how he looked. Like, he was pretty somehow. And I don't know what he thought about me, but we called ourselves brothers. So there was some kind of connection there. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was a connection, but I didn't know what it was but I'm 56 years old now and I still remember that name. Yeah, but knowing, I, I don't know. Not sure, I can't answer that. Yeah. You bring up a lot of things in, in my memories. <laughs> Mr. Shelton was my first male teacher. Yeah. Fifth grade, all the girls had crushes on him. I wasn't conscious, I said, oh, I like him at that time. I knew that it was not something to share with anybody else. Exactly. Yeah, those types of awarenesses. 
now it's easier to look back, but it's the same as the racism and anything else. Why did I think he was pretty with blonde hair and blue eyes? Where'd that come from at five years old? Robin D'Angelo, Dr. Robin D'Angelo. I know who she is, yeah. So much of what she says, I just think is on point. We seem to forget that those first two years, the kids are taking in everything. Before they can understand what language is, they're taking in imagery. So it is not strange or unbelievable to imagine that we're all socialized to believe white is beautiful, blonde is beautiful, white belongs, white is smarter, white is good. We're all learning that. So we were also learning that gay, whatever that is, isn't good. Two men together isn't good, right? Reggie, don't hold your hand like that. I forget the word for it, but don't, before you speak. I am conscious of that, yeah. You know, watch the way you walk. Don't hold your hand like that. Don't sound like this. Da, 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 da. Yeah. I'm, I think my dad did everything he could <laughs> to make me butch it up. He had me in his baseball team, and we had a basketball hoop, and, you know, I played basketball. Um, but like I said, I love learning. And I like being good, not to boast, but just for myself. And I've come to realize, who knows what I was thinking at the time, but not trying your best at whatever you're doing is a waste of time. Yeah. If you're doing it, why aren't you trying to do the best you can? I think we, we learned that early on. But I remember also wanting to go to Georgia Tech. I had heard often enough that gay guys were there or that it was gay or something like that. So you asked me about knowing when. I, I don't even remember when that was or when I heard that, but I remember hearing that. Mm -hmm. So even wanting to go to Georgia Tech in Atlanta was partially because gay. And of course I knew that there were a lot of gay guys in downtown. In Atlanta. Yeah, I knew that. It was all white people. White bars, white men. I mean, I haven't been back since... I think I visited in 96 or 98. That's the last time you were there. Yeah. Um, my parents both come from Mississippi and they moved us to Atlanta when we were nine months old. So Atlanta really is what I know most, but I know during the time we were there or I was there, I think the city was 86% black. So there was definitely a black thing happening. And I think that's why so many things are happening now with Tyler Perry Studios and the recording industries, they're starting to record much more shows there now and black people are thriving there now. But I think that began back then. Andrew Young was the mayor, but I don't know that it ever felt like black people still held like great power. Even though the population was so large? Yeah. Okay. You saw a lot of black people, but black people were still South and the white people were North. So similar to a lot of other cities. Yeah. When we moved out to where my mom's house is now, that was a predominantly white area and white neighborhood. I, mean, I don't remember noticing when it happened, but the white people definitely started disappearing. Now, all of that area was black and it's expanded three or four fold. I mean, rich black folk. That's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. But here's something I noticed having had an interest in architecture. When those new neighborhoods were being built, of course I wanted to go see what was happening. From the outside, those were the Southern colonial style 
buildings that had history in North Atlanta, right? The materials were cheaper. Okay. But the prices were twice. Cheaper and more money. Cheaper materials, but they cost more money. So it's still kind of it sounds like connected to uh, redlining. All of that. So what has life been for you as an out black gay man? Uh, I mean, it's been pretty easy. Disney World. <laughs> Disney's probably the gayest place to work on the planet. New York City has such a huge theater and artist community. And then Europe is more progressive than I think anywhere in America, even New York. So it's never felt problematic as far as freedom. But yeah, the gay community still seems like it's a big white community that doesn't seem to want to have much to do with us. So is that something, and I asked this because I thought about that when I decided to do what I'm doing, is I already know I'm going to be in the minority, a lot more so than in the States. Was that a thought process for you when you moved to Europe? No. One, it never entered my mind. It had less than nothing to do with why I was coming. But two, like I said, kindergarten, Regina and I were two out of 22. (laughs) You know, and America is white, white people on magazines, white people in politics, white people at the movies, white people on TV. It's nothing new. What brought me to Europe is that Disney Cruise Line. It was the first year that Disney Cruise Lines would be in the Mediterranean. So I spent the summer in the Mediterranean, Italy, France, Spain, one day I was walking through, we had a, a while in uh, Villefranche, which is on the Côte d'Azur. And I was walking up the mountain through these little streets, little houses. And ahead of me was a woman in a red dress standing outside her open door, having a conversation with someone across the street in the second floor. And I approached, looking at the architecture, the doors, beautiful doors, <laughs> the materials. And I just heard her say, bonjour, monsieur, comment ça va? And I looked around to see who she was talking to. And she was talking to me. And I thought immediately that would not happen anywhere in America. That would not happen in New York. She would have either gone in the door and closed it, or she would have pulled the door and locked it. Yeah. And in that moment, I thought, okay, I need to live in Europe. And I'm not stupid. Racism exists everywhere. But in Europe, I'm not the focus. And it's hard to get rid of all of those things that live in the psyche but I don't feel like I'm a black man here. I feel like I'm a man. You're touching on something like uh, I've been in a small village. It's the second time I'm here. And this time that I'm here, I'm more conscious that it's more me. You know, like you said, racism is everywhere, but having to retrain myself to make eye contact with people, to see someone, especially if it's a woman walking down the street and my first thought isn't like, oh shit, and what is this going to turn into? <laughs> but there's still that instance, that little tiny millisecond of thought. Uh, she going to cross the street? Or you're walking and you hear the car door lock. As many times as I was stopped in America by the police, uh, I was stopped here one Saturday. This was when I was still at Starlight Express. It's my favorite story to tell Americans. I was riding my bike. And it's 11 o'clock, at least 11 o'clock, 11.30 on a Saturday night. And there's a traffic light that is always red. 
And so I got to the crosswalk and stopped and I just thought, eh. So I go into the crosswalk, at which point I all of a sudden see blue lights. <laughs> and I'm like, no, where'd they come from? I pulled over and I got off the bike. And my first thought was, okay, should I speak German or English? And I thought English, because it'll take them off guard and it'll make them inquisitive or intrigued. So as the one cop got out of the car and started to approach me, I said, you're going to say that I ran that red light. <laughs> and he sort of stopped. I think, okay, he's speaking English. Let me say his retort was, and what would you say? And I thought, not in America. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then we had a conversation. This is not promoting racism, but I think to survive the racism that we experience in the U.S., I think prepares you for most places or most of the places I've been to so far. I was just going to interject that people always seem to think that I'm someone else. There's a guy on TV, and I always forget his name because it's not an English or German name, but he's a presenter on a couple of TV shows, and I've seen him on two or three now. And when I wear these kinds of glasses, I look even more like him. And when I saw him on uh, the internet, I thought, oh my God, I would think that's me. <laughs> Depending on you know, the, the angle and expression. And once or twice people came up to me and actually asked, am I that guy? And I was like, no, I'm not that guy, but I know what you're talking about. That story was about having a totally different relationship to police, but to your point, I think having gone through all of that racism in America, especially in the South and in Atlanta mm -hmm. and in Mississippi, where my mother's family still is, I think we can see it when we're in Europe. They want to build a mosque in this one neighborhood. <laughs> I was like, and this is Germany. They should become Germans. Will that guarantee acceptance? Well, it wouldn't, of course. We know that. I think it's easy for us to see that. In America, we grow up with racism every day, all day, tiny ways and big ways. Well, to touch on briefly before we close out, so I know you're an actor, you're a singer, you're a dancer. Do you have any other roles in the entertainment industry? I'm teaching kids now dance at a small theater academy. I have my first vocal student we meet on Tuesdays. A lot of people want to see me develop that. And I'm going to start dance classes at a studio at the end of the summer. So in that regard, I'm starting to sort of somehow give back. Pay it forward. <laughs> I believe you will give all those skills that were given to you when you discovered it. Give them that experience that you discovered in the basement. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's what makes a career last. I think that's what makes being on stage for you as well as the audience a magical experience, a transportive experience. Yeah. Um, how long have you been doing this? This podcast? Yeah. It started in the beginning of April. Okay. Yeah, so it's very new. I came up with the idea in February when I was still in Sweden. You know, I've traveled internationally for years. I see Black people in everywhere I've gone. 
but I was starting to say, well, where are people like me who look like me, who are, happen to also be gay or LGBT? For whatever reason, I wasn't finding it in the way I wanted it to in the time frame that I wanted it to happen. Some of the things you touched on in the beginning of the interview about, I think, just trusting this. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I couldn't go back to sleep, but I spent the next four hours just writing all this down. And it started, yeah. Oh, wow. So was there one specific instance or circumstance? I think for me, and it's not all the time, but, you know, type in Black gay man. Yes. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I'm not knocking that, but it's like we talk, we speak in complete sentences, we have ambitions, yeah. we have goals, we have careers, you know, everything you and other people I've interviewed so far have shared about. And for me, I moved to LA to be an actor and I wasn't in it for that long, but I always said it would be revolutionary to see a story of a man who lives in Germany, who's American, who's Black, who's gay, who's you know successful in his career, and he's not weighed down, at least in the storyline, by all the things that, and again, those are legitimate stories, but I want to hear stories like yours, because I do believe these types of stories need to be heard. I sing in a group. We call ourselves Black Soul Tenors. Now it's four of us. We all have played Papa in Starlight Express here in Bochum. We all live here. We all come from a theater background, right? So we can step forward and actually lead the audience through a story or through an experience as a solo artist. And that's what is the draw of the group. One is straight and married. One is gay and married to a German guy. And the other has a longtime friend, boyfriend. So we are all singers and theater people here living in Germany. So I'll, I'll have to talk to them. about. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah. And again, to just to get those stories out there, because just you telling me that it wouldn't cross my mind that there are that many Black people in Germany. I was listening to something recently about like how we get our self-confidence and our self-esteem. It's like through art, through literature, through neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. We need to see these stories. Of course, white people can afford to not pay attention to art around them. Because you don't have to because it's there. And it's yours. It's similar to being gay, you know, when you have to hunt for it like you're a private investigator, <laughs> of course you're aware of it. <laughs> oh my God. This town that I'm in now, mm -hmm. when I got here, had two gay bars and a gay club on Saturday nights. And I think within four or five years, they're all closed. I think that's even exacerbated by online dating, which I... Do not participate. Okay. Can I ask why? I have tried the dating apps. I've never been very good at the whole one night stand or planned one night out thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure from where this comes, but I'm not very trusting of the gay community at least. 
I think too many of them just want sex. And I always want much more than that. I certainly don't want to say, hi, how are you doing? Where are you? Let's go. <laughs> no, I relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's not even sexy to me. No. We're not talking about romance, which I do actually like. I like the touching physically, emotionally, spiritually. Yeah. This is attractive to look at, but that doesn't attract me. What attracts me is your sense of humor, your language and use of language, your questions. That takes time. I never experienced gay bars as places only to pick people up, or at least the ones I liked were also about socializing the potential of creating a gay circle or a gay network, mm, yeah, yeah. right? And also supporting gay business. To me, now that the gay bars are closed and people use apps to meet up just for sex, to me, it felt like, okay, so we're back in the closet as a community. So you don't have to go out to meet anybody. You don't have to go out to find a sexual partner. Now you can stay on your couch and find someone to come to your couch and have sex and then go back home. So we're back hidden. Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. It makes it very easy to be uh, not discreet, but to hide, yeah, as you said, yeah. And so suddenly I think, how free are we then? What do you think of this term gay lifestyle? I don't like it. I'm a vegan, that's a lifestyle. But gay is a, a lifestyle. To me, I think it feeds into people who still believe it's a choice. It's like, no, I chose to be vegan. I didn't choose to be gay. And I've told people that if I get close to them, my experience, my own, and based on what I've heard from especially gay men, is that when we first realize that part of ourselves, we're not usually jumping for joy. We're like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> yeah, that too. But when I say, well, do you have a heterosexual lifestyle? Well, no. Because <laughs> we're all different. Every gay man all across the world isn't smoking cocaine, going to the bar every night, having sex with all of the men that are around. Yeah. That's not a lifestyle, and it's not the gay lifestyle. I really, really enjoyed this conversation and very much look forward to sharing this with this growing community. This is my first ever podcast. I never imagined I would actually do a podcast or be a guest on a podcast. I don't know if I've ever had the opportunity to speak out on issues, especially gay issues. I've definitely never spoken about me as a gay person. Mm -hmm. What a good idea. Well, I say it was divinely inspired, so. Where do you want this to end up? Oh, that is a good <laughs> question. <laughs> I, I don't talk about myself usually on this platform, but part of this for me is I gave myself two years. You know, I was focused on Sweden, Stockholm, because um, I felt connected to that city and I've built a, a friendship network there. But this is the first time I feel like it's a springboard to something else. What that is, I don't know. The more you relinquish control over what you can't control, the more powerful you actually become because you're not controlled. Our life seems to be a continual journey to try to control, exert control 
exert power. You have control over how you react to what happens around you. My plan when I left my job and said I would give myself two years, I still thought I would get work in three months. It hasn't happened. And that's been the best thing to ever happen. I can say that now. If I saw where I'm at now, I would say I failed. But in not plugging into the world I had in Los Angeles, a lot of what I'm doing now is connected to the awarenesses I had at probably 15, 16. I love to write. I am not a gregarious person, but I love to discuss. I'm intrigued by people. And for whatever reason, the universe has pulled that all into what I'm doing right now with this podcast. Absolutely. And gregarious is a great word. One of my favorites. Thanks for using it. Uh, <laughs> haven't heard it in a long time. <laughs> when you realize that your every action is a choice, there's no reason for any regret. Yeah, hopefully this can really, really expand because I don't think that our community is the only community that needs to hear this. I do tend to feel like we're very much detached from the gay community because the gay community is white. Uh, you know, we talked about gay lifestyle. We talked a little bit about prejudice and, and racism. I think this is good for us and our segment of a larger community, but it definitely needs to be seen by a whole lot of people. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.